Mystery Podcast. Hello again. This is Mystery Podcast, and I'm novelist Sherry Todd Bayshore. Another day and another next chapter from my 2020 Distinguished Favorites award-winning suspense, The Count of Balpate. Today is Chapter 3. The following morning, back in his office above the garage, Hank tried desperately to concentrate on the precise wording for the last question in the last section of his history final. However, since the call from Claire Gage, it had been difficult to keep his attention from straying back to the evidence bag containing the vintage book with so many intriguing notes. He had counted twelve pages flagged by post-its in the book published over one hundred years before. Most of his afternoon had been frittered away between going back and forth between tweaking final exam questions and making his own notes from the book in the evidence bag. When Cleo came through his office door, she carried a small tray. She swung slightly to her left, then to her right, looking for a clear open place to rest it. But there was no desktop or tabletop or box top or any top with a stable surface. Instead, she settled for a fairly level space on several thick reference books that lined the length of an antique library table. The narrow table was more or less at a right angle to the north wall between Hank's roll-top desk and the east wall of his crowded bookshelves. His office was larger than the one at her bookstore. Hank's was almost 20 feet by 20 feet, but somehow it had less space. It had less space because he was reluctant to part with anything. Besides two laptops and three vintage computers with their monitors, Hank still kept original paper files in three tall metal file cabinets his stepfather once used. Their four boys described their dad's office as the Techno Museum. Hank's first cell phone was in a box of old computer cables on a shelf beside a 1988 IBM computer and monitor, his first, that still read five-inch floppy disks. A very heavy but still functioning 1994 Toshiba laptop was on the shelf above that, beside Hank's second computer that took three-inch file storage disks. On the top shelf was a clear plastic bin where each of his former cell phones had been laid to rest. Cardboard file boxes were stacked in random columns that contained research material from published papers. Other boxes contained research data for his master's and doctoral thesis. And even more boxes, there was additional documentation for potential future papers. At one time, Mrs. Rule would have been thrilled for the opportunity to clean up and organize her husband's office. However, she knew that almost 40 years of academic and technological accumulation would take far more than one week to put everything in order. Then after buying her bookstore, she could never find six consecutive days when Hank wouldn't need his office and she had that kind of time. Cleo's attention then turned to her husband's desktop as she searched for a safe place to set down his full coffee mug. Then perched on a piano stool, she knew she'd have his attention when he looked for some cookies to go with his mid-afternoon coffee. When Hank swung around in his desk chair, he held the bagged copy of the Seven Keys to Balpate in his right hand, while his left hand instinctively searched for a newly opened box of Girl Guide cookies. Here's the book, The New Sheriff of Estes Park, who, as it happens, was a former student of mine, found with a body discovered this morning near the Balpate Inn parking lot. One entire Girl Guide Berry Munch cookie disappeared in one bite. He chewed and talked. I know that the inn sells them, but have you ever carried a copy of this book in Cottonwood Books? Cleo leaned closer. Ah, Earl der Biggers. No, we've never carried this one, but we carry all of the books from his Charlie Chan mystery series. Those are classics. 
Hank was still chewing and took a sip from his mug, Charlie Chan. So this author was famous? Never heard of him. That's because you're biased against fiction. But fiction combined with fact can be every bit as interesting, often more. And I sell fictional mystery books six to one over nonfiction mysteries. So there. She pulled out a Girl Guide lemonade from a second box and took a bite. Besides, with factual history, the reader knows who did it and how everything ends. With fiction, the end isn't always a given, unless it's a predictable formula plot or some numbskull writer gives away too much as the story progresses. That's all well and good for your business bottom line, but I know for a fact that Charlie Chan won't be at all helpful finding who shot Hugo Lance. Of course not, but the deduction process is the same. You know, assessing clues, eliminating suspects, checking alibis. Whether you're a fictional book detective or an actual detective who's also the sheriff of Estes, Cleo's point was interrupted by Hank's cell phone. Claire, hello. My wife Cleo and I were just discussing our dilemma of Hugo Lance. He waited. Yes, I'll say hi for you. No, she's not still teaching high school. She opened a bookstore in Old Town seven years ago. Cleo listened to her husband's end of the conversation, sipping her coffee and reaching for a second cookie. Got nothing on the book yet, except the author was apparently famous. Have you heard of the fictional Asian detective Charlie Chan? He waited. Well, apparently the author of Seven Keys was also the author of the Chan Detective series, but that's all I have so far. Hank listened. Oh, it's back, huh? Really? Then should you or the Reading police be looking for a second body? Did the nephew and his great-uncle go missing at the same time? Okay. He looked away for a moment, scowling then back. I set aside time to see if I can make some sense of the marked pages. I'll also check attendance lists for the other history seminars I've given along with summer class lists for the surname Beck and Lance again. I still have no idea why this guy would have an old business card of mine unless... How old are Sylvia and Simon Beck? Well, that would put them at about the right age as freshmen if they started CSU for the 1996-1997 academic school year. It also means they were newborns when great-uncle Hugo gave them the book. Odd baby gift. It's a first edition, but not particularly valuable. He listened for another minute. Got it. I'll let you know as soon as I discover anything from my end that will help. Hank ended the call. Cleo waited a moment. Well, don't keep me in suspense. The last name of the great-niece and great-nephew of the recently deceased Hugo Lance is Beck. Sylvia Beck, who's from Reading, Pennsylvania, is also the person who reported her great-uncle missing two weeks ago, and a few days later after that, her twin brother went missing too. Claire got a hit from a National Missing Persons database. She contacted Reading Police, and they sent an officer to Miss Beck's home to inform her of her uncle's confirmed death. Does Claire suspect the brother is also dead? He may be, but she seems to think it's a stronger possibility that he's on the run, because he may have been the shooter. Until that's established, she's organizing another search party to look for other evidence around the grounds up at the inn. Naturally, she hopes they don't find another body. Cleo looked down at the tray. I must quit buying these cookies. I'm taking the rest to the bookstore tomorrow so we don't eat them. She stood gathering the tray, cookies and mugs. Good luck with the clues for the body you do have. Hank finished the last question on the last page of the exam. After emailing it to his TA, he settled in to check all the names of his regular and summer class lists from 1990 to 1999. 
there were no students listed with the last name of Beck or Lance, and there were no history class audit students with either last name, nor anyone with either last name who had registered to attend any of his guest lectures at other colleges or universities in Colorado. Next, he checked with the department secretary, his thesis students, and other colleagues. The author had created Hooperstown as a fictional location in Westchester County, New York, and so was Upper Asquan Falls, New York, which is why Dr. Rule hated fiction. Since he knew Long Island existed, and so did Westchester County, New York, using internet copies of 100-year-old maps for his starting point, he spent the rest of the afternoon trying to find any connection between the page references in the book with what was happening socially or politically at the turn of the 20th century. Two hours later, when Cleo called him for their evening meal, he still had no idea why the 12 pages or the specific sentences on those pages had been flagged. He trudged through the kitchen door, scowling. How the hell is anyone supposed to research something, or someone, or some place that doesn't, correction, didn't exist, except in the mind of some fiction writer? Cleo poured two glasses of wine. Wow, you're particularly cheery. Here, savor some of this. It's fresh from the box. Hank accepted his glass, but his mind remained focused on his frustration with the case and the book. I still don't know why Hugo Lance had my business card. Neither Simon Beck nor Sylvia Beck were ever students at CSU. He took a sip of his wine more from habit than interest. The 44 Street Club on Long Island is just as fictional as the town of Ruton, Pennsylvania, and Hooperstown, Westchester County, and Upper Asquan Falls, New York. Reedsboro, Vermont does exist, and Balpate Inn exists, but your author plunked his inn on a mountain he named Balpate in the state of New York. The chair of Crandall Comparative Literature is not an academic position. However, a Crandall, apparently, is a mason's tool for addressing stone, whatever the hell that means. There's no such novel as The Lost Limousine. Hank took another sip of wine. This time he held it in his mouth for a split second, then swallowed I seem to recall you saying something about fiction with fact made a wonderful plot or some such crap. How does someone determine any facts when works of fiction don't come with an index? Cleo finished dishing up their plates of spaghetti and they carried them into the dining room. They sat facing each other at the same end of their nine-foot pine trestle table. Eight of their ten bow-back chairs were empty. Even with all four of their boys grown and on their own, they usually ate their evening meal together in this room. You need to think like a creative writer, not a history professor. Cleo took a sip of her glass of wine. First of all, each of those places may very well exist, but the author renamed them for a reason. The Seven Keys to Balpate is about a murder. What if there really was a murder in a remote vacation hotel in a small resort town, but at the time, she pointed her spoon at Hank, the killer hadn't been caught. So the author changes the names of a few places, leaving other hints in the plot. She twisted pasta around her fork, using the end of her spoon. What better way to disguise the truth than that a classic work of fiction? Could Claire find out if there was a high-profile murder in Pennsylvania or upstate New York, say, between 1900 and 1910? Hank stabbed a meatball. I'm sure she could, but if there was such an unsolved crime, so horrendous, scandalous, and appalling, 100 years is typically three, sometimes four generations. That's not a long time in comparative history, but still quite a stretch for me to take to Claire as speculation. She shrugged, smiling. Well, you've really got zip right now, don't you, Professor? Cleo made a face and took another sip of her wine. 
Since Reedsboro, Vermont does exist, I find that fascinating. Why is Reedsboro the only actual place, but all the other locations are fictional? She thought for a moment with her fork and spoon poised in the air. Maybe Reedsboro is a starting point. New York shares an eastern border with Vermont and a southern border with Pennsylvania, so there might be something in old newspaper archives. She put down her spoon, then reached for a slice of cheddar. When you published your papers, did anyone from any of the other universities and other states respond or send comments? Would there be someone you could contact in Vermont or New York or... That's it! Hank stared at his wife. I completely spaced this out. I gave a talk at Albright College in Reading, Pennsylvania, May 1997, on the highlights from my Ph.D. thesis, The Politically Charged Church State, A History of Governing Religions. And because so many Huguenot refugees from the Protestant Reformation settled there 200 years ago, the college also invited the public. I gave two back-to-back -back seminars, and my business cards were piled in several glass bowls like mints. Hugo Lance must have attended one of my seminars and picked up my card then. He blew his wife a kiss. It's wonderful how your chatter sometimes makes sense. Thank you. He attacked his meal. Oh, you're welcome, Cleo scowled. By the way, what's a ball pate? So ends the last chapter, chapter three, where I'll leave you wondering. Thank you for listening. But if I've done my job again, you'll need to know more. And more is easy. Just go to my website, patchworkpublishing.com. From my website, hit the tab label, More Thrillers. When you click on the book cover, you'll be taken directly to Amazon Books, where you can choose to buy either a digital copy or a print copy. Regardless of which version you select, please leave a review with Amazon. Thank you again so much for listening. I hope I've left you curious. Enjoy.